or society can play in the stability and growth of a country. This year's contingent of 15 young leaders uh, who are dynamic civil society leaders who were selected through a highly competitive process embody Pakistan's ethnic, religious, and geographic diversity. They're social entrepreneurs, they're artists, they're educators, they're minority rights activists, aspiring politicians, journalists, and tech innovators who are working to solve some of Pakistan's most uh, pressing challenges. They are committed to their communities, to Pakistan, and they also represent a broad cross-section of Pakistani society. The fellows are here for three weeks in the U.S. Um, they were in New York for the first week. They arrived in D.C. last Friday. Tomorrow they leave for Detroit, where they're going to be experiencing home stays with local American families for about four nights, and then they end the program in San Francisco. So this year's program uh, focuses on countering violent extremism through meetings with individuals and organizations who can impart practical experience and learnings to the fellows so that when they return to Pakistan, they can apply it in their own context to the work that they're individually doing. In addition, their visit aims to strengthen relations between Pakistanis and Americans uh, by addressing misperceptions on both sides of that relationship, as well as build a network of young Pakistani leaders who can stay connected once they return to Pakistan. During their visit, they're meeting with policymakers, practitioners, civil society, diaspora communities, development organizations, as well as others who can inspire them with ideas to address some of Pakistan's most, most critical challenges. And so the trip to the U.S. is merely a catalyst for long-term engagement among the fellows, not only amongst the 15 you see here, but also the 60 who have previously gone through this program, our alumni. So we purposely planned for them to be in Washington, D.C. during our elections, and many of them attended an election watch party last night. I won't comment more on this, but I would encourage <laughs> you to, um, to talk about you know, to talk about their experience with them when we break later for a reception. Um, as you'll hear today and read from their bios, the fellows are truly vested in their country and their communities and are coming up with innovative ideas on how to tackle some of Pakistan's challenges, of which we know there are many. And if they're properly supported, I am confident um, that they will undoubtedly carry Pakistan into a strong country. I would like to thank the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad's Public Affairs Community Engagement Office for supporting this fellowship, as well as seeing them off to the U.S. with a pre-departure orientation in Islamabad. I'd also recognize youth engagement, like to recognize youth engagement services, Network Pakistan, which is an on-the-ground partner, um, and also the Hashu group that provides in-kind support. I would also like to recognize my colleague Shamila Ashraf, who was instrumental in putting this program together under a very tight timeline, as well as my friend and colleague Gabe Hussain, who's accompanying the group during these three weeks. I'm going to give a very brief introduction on each of the fellows, and then they're going to uh, take the opportunity to talk more about the work that they're, that they're doing currently in Pakistan. So immediately to my left is Wajiha Riaz. She's a clerk of the Parliament of Pakistan. Uh, through her diverse training in the development sector, the National Assembly, and now as a clerk in the Senate of Pakistan, Wajiha realized the significance of inclusivity and the Parliament's role as a catalyst for change. Wajiha believes the lack of research-based discourse is a major impediment for ensuring stability and development in Pakistan. She strives to build an inclusive society where marginalized segments of the population are treated equitably, including women, minorities, and persons with disabilities. So maybe what I'll do is I'll stop here, you speak, and then I'll introduce you guys one by one. The floor is yours. Hi. <clears throat> As Kamal yeah. already mentioned, um, it was in 2013 when I joined Foundation's Open Society Institute of Pakistan, the Islamabad Office of Open Society Foundations. And by interning there, I realized the importance and the impact the development sector plays in the public discourse. And over there, I was part of the Open Government Initiative, and we advocated to have the first ever consultation. And as part of the consultation and the advocacy effect was such 
that now the government participates in the uh, OGP consultations at the government level. However, while I was interning, my, since OSF is a grant-making organization, there wasn't much room for research. So I joined a research organization called Policy Research Institute of Market Economy, Prime in Islamabad. Over there, I continued with the work on transparency, and I started working on a project called Manifesto Tra Tracking Pro Project. In that project, we um, uh, looked at the economic manifesto of the federal government, which was the which is the Pakistan Muslim Nawaz Party, and we tried to have uh, the uh, analyze it on the policy level, because currently the discourse is mainly on the uh, popular popularism, and we started looking at the promises they made and how those promises are they are they trying to uh, trying to fulfill them or not. While working there and interactions, I realized that, okay, we are doing this research, but unless we engage the parliament in the discourse, it's, it's of no use. And uh, the endorsement of parliamentarians is very important. So in 2015 March, I joined the National Assembly of Pakistan. Initially, when I started working in the assembly, I also thought that it's just another debating club and they just go there and people debate. However, while working, I came across the committees and I looked at the oversight role which the parliament exercises. And furthermore, the legislative part, which is a bit un the, the, the effort individual members play in introducing and developing bills which affect the common people. That was something which really touched my heart and I wanted to work more on it. Over there, I was deployed at Women's Parliamentary Caucus, which is an informal cross-party uh, uh, setup for uh, women parliamentarians. And the purpose of the caucus is to engage on women-centric issues. While working there, since I had a development sector background, I thought that the research which is being done by the development sector needs to be shared with these women parliamentarians. Unless we share this research, it's of no use. They'll, they won't be able to use it and identify it. So after consultation with some of the higher-ups, I started a series of study circles. And one of these study circles was on sustainable development goals. And uh, during the study circle, we linked how women parliamentarians can use SDGs in exercising their role as representatives as well as an oversight role. And uh, furthermore, the women parliamentarians agreed and in the past they have started raising calling attention notices and questions relating to SDGs in the debates of the parliament which can be seen. Furthermore, we also had this conference on role of uh, women with disabilities. Uh, in the light of sustainable development goals. On this, uh, the main purpose was inclusivity of persons of women with disabilities. However, on the sidelines of this conference, one very important issue came up. And it was that in the census forms, Pakistan is going to have the census, persons with disabilities were not included. And that issue came to light as a result of the conference. It was highlighted elsewhere as well. But because of the conference and the participation of the parliamentarians and chairman senate, it got a lot of validation and coverage in the media. And I think that is the kind of debate which needs to be highlighted. And parliamentarians can play a very important role. Furthermore, I was really inspired by the he for she campaign launched by in the UN. So working on the similar pattern, we organized a similar campaign called Friends of Caucus. Because since Caucus is a women's body, so only women parliamentarians are members. However, when women are lobbying for any bill, they need support of men, uh, male parliamentarians. They can't pass the bill. So this Friends of Caucus campaign brought all women from different political parties, the religious parties, 
the liberal parties together and they started campaigning within their parties and got these pledges from their male counterparts whereby they said that they will support the uh, efforts of the caucus. Another instance is that uh, when you look at the role of women in peace processes as a way to highlight the issues faced and the APS attack, the army public school attack uh, on 16th uh, December in, uh, in Peshawar, WPC last year organized this conference where role of women parliamentarians was identified because being women they are identifiers in their homes as well and they also have grassroots presence so they could talk to women in their constituencies who are not too familiar and uh, com comfortable talking to the people from the NGOs or others and they have a grassroots level so we in addition to the uh, consultation we also developed this uh, we had this idea that women's role in peace processes should be formalized and we developed a commitment form which was which is still in the pipeline to be signed by the parliamentary leaders of all the political parties so in all peace processes whenever there are peace processes women are included in the jirgas in the national consultations and all these um, apcs the role of women is there and it's not just because somebody thought they should invite no because it's they, they, they stand for it and through these initiatives, I thought that linking research, uh, being up to date with what's happening around, taking ideas from the international uh, ideas, as well as in, uh, twisting them and tweaking them to the local environment, is how we can go forward. Furthermore, right now, I'm associated with Senate as the clerk of the parliament. And in, this is this new initiative launched by Senate of Pakistan. And as part of this initiative, we are a group of 20 people have been inducted and we've given training, a two months training, and then we'll be working in the Senate Secretariat in various capacities. Uh, on my part, I'll be working in legislative drafting because there's a dearth of people in, in drafting legislation. In Pakistan, there are lots, lots and lots of lawyers, but drafting legislation is a very big issue. And there are lots of loopholes. When you look at any bill, there's so many loopholes and you can find a way to get around. So in order to identify the legislative drafting, and I'm thankful that I got really good training over there. And hopefully in future, I plan on utilizing that training and identifying the areas where more uh, this drafting could be used and improve the lives of people. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we have Sharez Ashraf Malik. And Sharez is working towards eradicating extremism, gender discrimination, and sectarian violence. He is the co-founder of the Nader Foundation, which is a non-profit organization that established the Nader Girls Higher Secondary School in, in Pashtun. The school provides state-of-the-art educational facilities and science and technology to girls in his village. Currently, there are 350 students enrolled, 80% of whom are on need-based scholarships. Thank you very much. Ms. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, assalamu alaikum and a very, very good evening all of you. Uh, your presence over here today with us is enough an appreciation for me, for my fellow sitting over there, and for the work we are doing. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, before I could, before I can actually uh, talk about my project, uh, I would like to take a moment to uh, extend my utmost gratitude to the Atlantic Council, uh, to the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, and to the U.S. State Department uh, for coming up with this amazing program. We are only halfway through the program, and we think we have learned so much that we can go back and apply in all fields of work. And special thanks to Suma for coordinating everything for us. Uh, it is a brilliant and amazing experience we are having. 
Uh, thank you, Shamala. We have a new intern over here as well, Miss Kaidi. Thank you very much. Uh, this is an amazing experience. Thank you very much. Uh, now, uh, we have a friend from Britain over here as well. Uh, I think many of uh, us are familiar with J.K. Rowling, the author of the famous Harry Potter series. Yeah, yeah. So, Forbes in 2012 announced that Miss Rowling dropped off its billionaire list because somehow she gave away too many donations to the society. When asked about this, Ms. Rowling responded by saying, it is our moral responsibility that when we have been, what have been given to us is more than what we actually need. We have to give it back to the society and invest intelligently. So similar to that, I, along with my father, my uncle, and my family started a foundation. A foundation that would, in all its due course, work on the empowering the women of the rural areas of Pakistan. A foundation that would fight the gender discrimination towards the women in the rural areas of Pakistan. And a foundation that would most specifically and specially work on the education of the women in the rural areas of Pakistan. Having said that, we came up with this foundation by the name of Nadir Foundation and we founded it in 2008. Let me give you a little bit of statistics about Pakistan. More than 61% of the population in Pakistan is living in the rural areas. And we have a literacy rate of 57%. Unfortunately, the way literacy, literacy is defined in Pakistan is absurd. Literacy in Pakistan is defined in a way that a person who can actually sign his or her name is a literate person. So if I actually go back to my village and I try to find out how many literate women are over there, so there are only more than 20%. It's just 80% of the women in a rural area, in a village in Pakistan, is illiterate. Having said that, this was the responsibility of the government. Unfortunately, our government has been uh, our government's inability to address to the needs, the education needs of the people of the village of the uh, country was immensely unfortunate, and because of which there were other state actors who became involved. They chipped in state actors that were not able that you cannot trace what they are teaching state actors which would not tell you what they are teaching state actors who do, about whom you do not know who is funding them. So there were different state actors, they had different motives and they came up with different ideologies. This became worse and worse in Pakistan and because of which we had a lot of sectarianism. Because of which they were fighting against each other and we had a lot of violence. My project when I started it was a reason that I was facing problems in my village. My family was facing problems. My relatives who were in the village were facing problems. My own cousins, they were actually going towards the extremist sides. Their ideology, their mentality was going towards the extremist side. And that was which worried me, which worried my family. And we founded the Nadir Foundation. Why we actually focused on the women of the area was the very fact that there is not even a single school over there, there is not even a single college over there that is actually providing education to the women. There are education institutions by the government, but those education institutions are just for the boys and they are mostly ghost schools. So the women of that area did not have the right to study 
did not have the right to go out and speak for themselves. Therefore, we founded this education institution. This education institution is a place where 350 students are right now currently getting education, on, and more than 80% of whom are on merit-based scholarship. How we actually fund it? The only thing we do is we do not get any donations from the government, from any donor institution. We have our own family which supports the project. The reason why we, we aren't getting any donations from any other institution or government is the fact that we do not want interference. But, but the education system that we are following is definitely the education system of the government. So you can actually, anyone can actually trace to what we are teaching, to what we are posting. And because of that, because of that issue, today more than 350 students are studying over there. More than 600 students have already graduated. The impact that had built on the society is the fact that out of the 27 teachers that we have over there, more than 20% are the graduates of that same institution. So that is something that that is quite of an honor to me that my own teachers, my own students are coming back to the institute, to the village, and teaching over there. There's a there's a reason, there's a fact that I would like to share uh, with you. There was this Peshawar APS attack, and it was one of the most brutal attacks in the history of the country. There was a nagma that was issued by the ISPR, and the nagma had the title. If translated in English, it means that we also have to teach the children of our family of our force. So with that aim, we are actually working towards eradicating extremism. We want to teach the children of those extremists that are over there. We want to make sure that their children do not follow the steps of their parents. We want to make sure that the the children of those villages, they actually are more literate and follow the footsteps of some of the amazing people in the world, in the field of science and technology. I'm also the chairman of the Young Entrepreneur Committee at the Raudhini Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Uh, the Raudhini Chamber of Commerce and Industry is one of the most active chambers in the country. Well, it would be like I'm posting about my own organization, but the very fact is that the Chamber of Commerce and Industry is the only chamber in the country that holds the All Prisons Conference. So what I do over there is that I, as the chairman of the Young Entrepreneur Committee, I try to build a gap between the graduating students of the, of the city and the business community, the people who are leading the business in that city, thereby actually promoting the graduating students to start their own entrepreneurial activities rather than finding for jobs Unfortunately, the job structure in Pakistan is going really bad and we do not have many jobs to offer. So my role as a young entrepreneur committee chairman is to actually make sure that the graduating students opt towards an entrepreneurial activity rather than finding jobs. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we have Haris, brother. Haris is the youngest in this group. He's only 18 uh, years old, but he's done quite a bit in those 18 years. He is an emerging social activist and social entrepreneur from Sabah Valley. He founded Pakhtun Wardrobe, which is a platform that connects disaster-affected artisans with national and international markets to stimulate their economic development and encourage the revitalization of their craft. The network that he's built also connects artisans to one another resulting in knowledge sharing, teamwork, and dispute resolution for a community that has been deeply affected by conflict. 
Assalamu alaikum everyone. Before enlightening you with uh, my work, I would like to uh, thank uh, Ms. Oma, uh, Katie, and Dr. Uh, Maila for facilitating us throughout the event. It has been throughout the program. Uh, I'm extremely grateful to the uh, US Embassy and Atlanticos for providing me the opportunity to uh, provide me this amazing uh, opportunity. Uh, I'm a Swartborn uh, social activist and social entrepreneur. Pakhtun uh, Belt was uh, under the grip of militancy for many years uh, that resulted in vanishing the local assets and uh, livelihoods of uh, craft, uh, craft workers for revitalization of their crafts and uh, uh, for revitalization of uh, their crafts and uh, their livelihood. Uh, I have laid the foundation of Pakhtun Wardrobe, uh, which is an e-commerce platform uh, connecting these disaster affected artisans with national and international markets thereby stimulating the economic development and uh, reviving craftsmanship. Uh, we have, uh, so far we have worked with uh, more than 10,000 artisans. We have part partnered with uh, the pro provincial government of Khaybar Fakhtunkhwa and uh, we are enabling the access of these uh, disaster affected artisans to basic social facilities. Uh, Besides this, uh, I ha I, I'm, uh, I'm serving as a program officer at Swati Front and uh, have uh, been striving to enlighten youth with civic sense and personal and social skills. I have worked as a volunteer with uh, UNDP Pakistan uh, for incorporating the views of local youth in uh, the largest youth report which is uh, about to publish uh, under the title of National Human Development Report. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. End of the panel here, we have Ayub Ayubi, who is the founder of the Renaissance by Social Innovation Pakistan. It was established in 2011. Sorry, um, his organization addresses violent extremism and radicalization through engaging youth. Ayub was actually born and raised in a very strict Orthodox family and was once, was once himself influenced by extremist religious ideologies. However, a combination of experiences, including education and dialogue with the right individuals, enabled him to challenge the dogmas and overcome radical influences. And now, being on the other side, he believes that civic education alone cannot achieve a desired condition of tolerance in Pakistan. So and he thinks that education must be coupled with culturally sensitive conflict resolution skills and ample opportunity for dialogue and hope and at school. So he himself is sort of a convert from one side to the other. Uh, well, I'm thankful to Homer for a very nice introduction. I'm thankful to Atlantic Council for organizing this event for us and this whole adventure for us. In fact, it is uh, giving me and all the fellows hopefully a new energy and sense of belonging that is obviously missing. And specifically, uh, a guy like me who has faced a lot of uh, struggle and a, a consistent problem from the home side, this kind of environment is really a charming and re-energizing. So I'm thankful to uh, Atlantic Council and US Embassy for organizing this whole event. I'm thankful, uh, also thankful to all of the panels who are making this uh, very amazing uh, adventure. And also the participants who are here to listen our stories. Uh, I will start my story uh, from a regressive activist to a progressive activist. Uh, in fact, I was born and raised in highly intense ideologically extremist environment. My parents were uh, non-violent extremists. 
and they were belonging to a religious cult that was uh, preaching or that was based on Islamic missionary movement. And my initial uh, schooling was actually part of uh, uh, a specific Deobandi cult. Uh, I was studying at Madrasa and as well as at school. I was going through two educational systems at the same time. What I was learning from, my, from Madrasa, I was memorizing Quran, was totally different what I was uh, uh, learning from my school and there was two different cultures. And it was not only me who, was who, was, who had to go this process and have to observe two cultures at the same time. There were hundreds and thousands and even millions of children were there who were going through the similar process. And in Pakistan, if you're aware, and many people belong to that, uh, Pakistan contains a sectarian social fabric. It is quite common. You, you uh, have to belong to any, or you have to belong to any specific sectarian mentality, sect, or the school of thought. That is obvious. Either you would be a Diobandi, Brailvi, Ali Hadith, Wahhabi, or any other kind of school of thought you would be belonging to. In 2002, I joined college. I studied at Gordon College, Rawalpindi. I found a freedom at college. At school, I was very much dependent on my parents and my home environment and my school or madrasa environment that was making me dependent on many factors. At college, I found a freedom. I joined an organization uh, that was an ideologically extremist organization. But that organization provided me a sense of belonging and a quest for power. Uh, it was coupled with uh, a kind of a political struggle. In 2004, I was while I was on a mission of recruiting more young people for that organization, I was encountered by a progressive movement that was working in the similar campus. It was a kind of a bloody fight with them, but it ended on a friendship. And they invited me on a debate forum where several social issues were discussed. I went there to recruit them, but it ended on they recruited me because they were. I was. Uh, I'm quite a logical guy and quite a reasonable one. If someone offers me some logic, I immediately accept it, and that's uh, a very good habit. Perhaps it allowed me to overcome uh, radical uh, element or a kind of a fear of uh, uh, non-Muslim world, or uh, it it allowed me to balance my quest of power. That was obvious when I was the part of that radical movement. The journey began from there, and but I was it, it was not that I, I will say that the encounter was in fact the beginning point that tapped my inner conversation that some something is going wrong over there, and I need to think. I I need to allow myself some reflection time that I'm going in a, in an autopilot mode. I'm never thinking what's happening. In fact, I was not even aware what's going there. 
what's going on there because I was born and raised into that environment. I, it was not that my deliberate choice that I'm going and joining a radical movement or somebody is recruiting while taking my consent. It was not like that. I was born and raised. But the uh, anti-Shia sentiments were quite common. Anti-Iran sentiments were, were quite common. I was considering myself a dominant Muslim who has only the authority to rule the world. These narratives were quite common among us and I was supporting the jihad and ideologically I was never part of um, a kind of militant or something like that but ideologically I was quite strong in whatever I believed and I was confident about in preaching it. In 2011 the time went by and in 2011 uh, I decided to create a forum, a platform where I should, where I wanted to allow young people to find some space for dialogue, because uh, when I took a decision to leave the radical thoughts or leave the radical movement, my parents were against me. They opposed me. My, uh, I immediately lost my social circle that I was part of since my childhood. Uh, it was a very difficult time, it was a very lonely time, I was alone on the road, nobody was there to say uh, or even understand what's going on with me. I was alone on the road and I was weeping alone when nobody was looking at me. Uh, my father didn't talk to me for eight years and he's still not very happy with me. So it was quite a difficult time for me and I suffered lot and nobody was there. In 2011, I realized that uh, I have, I'm blessed that I'm out of this radicalized world and I, I need, uh, I'm able now to pay back something to other people and I wanted to, there was a, there was a great, uh, 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 you can say that a kind of a charity in me that I wanted to take other people out of this and I wanted to provide some channel where young people could go and they would talk what's happening with them, what narrative they're adopting. Because we normally take it for granted. The media, what is offering, the parents, what, what narrative ideology they're offering, we are taking in Pakistan for granted. We never take it serious, but we never realize that it may take anyone's life. It may take anyone on the wrong path. We never realize it. We are taking it for granted. The ideology is for granted. School of thought is for granted. Narrative is for granted. Whatever we are taking is there. We, we are taking it like a version. No, it's, it's okay. We have to get busy with our stuff. So I decided to found an organization where I would allow, and in 2011, I established organization, Renaissance Foundation for Social Innovation Pakistan Renaissance is a French word, it means revival. And since 2011, this organization has conducted several policy dialogue, several, uh, uh, it has reached to 5,000 young people through three different programs across 20 universities. And we have designed recently a program, a counter narrative campaign that is uh, specifically based on uh, uh, a research which is, uh, we, we conducted in fact a research on uh, extremist outfits and we analyzed the narrative and ideology that they are offering and we provided exactly the opposite 
uh, alternative narrative and launched a campaign through social media and in-person dialogue in 20 universities across Pakistan. And we have reached uh, so many young people, hundreds of young people with this campaign and we found an overwhelming response. Uh, this campaign was supported by United States Institute for Peace and we are hoping to continue this campaign and other programs in the coming years and we are very hopeful about it and this is in fact uh, my cause and my life's objective and Rasif is my family and the ELP is my family now. And thank you. There's 15 fellows, only four, we only have room for four on the stage, but I'm going to open it up for Q&A and I encourage you to ask your questions directly to one of these fellows or to anyone that are in the audience and the audience, uh, fellows in the audience should also feel if you want to answer the question, just, you know, raise your hand, I'll, I'll pick you. Unfortunately, we don't have a mic, so if you have a question, just kind of raise your hand, I'll point to you if I can ask you to stand up and maybe elevate your voice a little bit so everybody can hear you. Any questions? I'm going to hold off online so we can. I've been spending a lot of time with these guys, so I want to give the audience an opportunity to pose questions. Are we still recovering late night from last night? <laughs> so I'm going to ask the first question, then, and this goes to any of the fellows who want to answer. Is um, as you you know, the focus of this group this year is countering violent extremism, and as you probably learned, is depending on what organization you go to, who you meet with, the, the definition seems to vary. Um, and it often is a, it's a, a term that's used to encompass an overarching theme and sort of, you know, throw everything in the same bucket. So, what in, in back in Pakistan, you guys are all working in some capacity, some shape or form, to, to counter violent extremism. In the past week and a half that you've been here, can you share some of the tools that you've picked up through your meetings and, and encounters with various people that you know you're, you're planning to take back to Pakistan with you? Anybody out there want to answer? You're also welcome to participate. Yeah. Well, since I am from, uh, I work at Senate, and primarily my job is research-based. So for me, the meetings where we uh, met researchers and uh, like yesterday we went to start uh, it's uh, housed in the University of Maryland so over there I got a good idea how research is done and how it's shared with the Congress so I would pick up that, that how you can liaison with the think tanks and the con in the con and the Congress over there so how I can implement it back home with the think tanks working on different issues in Pakistan and how the parliamentary parliaments research or the Senate secretariat or research staff could be linked Furthermore, we went to Peace, uh, Peace Institute, USIP, and over there also they're working in individual capacity with a committee, with one committee. So I would like to explore that if we could work with more committees, because if they're working on one, then it becomes difficult for them as well. And uh, in that environment, in the bureaucratic environment, getting uh, if a lot of people are working, then it's more acceptance. If one person's working, then it gets difficult to get the work done. Thirdly, we had this uh, meeting with Mehreen and over there she highlighted some of the studies and the toolkits she's developed. So I intend to read those toolkits in detail because I just came through them and I'm pretty sure that the consensus building part, how to build consensus in meetings and in consultations because many times uh, we have these committees and the people from diverse backgrounds, you don't want to offend somebody but at the same time you want to reach a conclusion. So how to go about that? So these are the three things which I'm thinking. Can I yeah. So, so 
instead you can move here i can make you yes yes my name is navid hamid and the i'm i'm a kindener of cbe back in pakistan working as a new media activist for peace building and trainings uh, of course with the young seeds uh it has been a wonderful experience for me as for as my personal and professional uh, understanding is concerned there are so many opportunity to meet at different uh, people places and exploring the different uh, different things and one one thing which i personally learned and it, it will turn into be my professional as well the ideas the ideas has the very worth but the no uh, every idea has a worth but added into a workable strategies workable tools and cve which i was looking forward how we can work effectively back in pakistan with young generation and with young seers and educational institutes and and as well as uh, with the institutional capacity with other institutes as well so i learned so many things which can be a workable and on grounds in pakistan which have a success thank you so much thank you thank you yes yeah. <coughs> uh, well uh, before coming over here we had a biased opinion towards pakistan that uh, the things we are doing or the government is doing or army is doing or establishment is doing they are the right things and there is nothing uh, wrong about them and everything what the american government is doing or the institution that they were making government are doing they're probably probably in their own interest and they are somehow not supporting us coming over here talking to the officials at different uh, institutions for example the kata one the white house and uh, the uh, usip and other institution we came to a conclusion uh, that how realistically the world around us is taking complaining world extremism how realistically they are actually trying to tackle this problem and unfortunately uh, our society we over here uh, we do not stand against those things we do not stand against the problems that we have in our society we are just blaming it on this the other the international community or or uh, enemies across the border or everything so coming over here learning about the experiences learning about the the problems the american government or the international is facing inside pakistan it was an insight to us it was an insight to our uh, the work we are doing and definitely when we go back we'll see it from a perspective of the international community rather than just being a pakistani and seeing it from that uh, so i think a lot of views of us have changed after coming to this project yeah sure Hi, my name is Sharan Khan. Uh, I'm from Quetta, Rajasthan, uh, which is one of the most affected uh, cities by terrorism. Um, I basically work on um, early childhood education. So we give trainings to the kids under 18 years old, both in government and private schools. And uh, recently, we just started collaborating with uh, religious institutions, which we call them madrasas. So uh, basically, uh, what I learned here, uh, the best part here is that. Uh, here in usa police are before police they are humans so i learned lots of techniques uh, because we visited nypd and i guess homeland security uh, so uh, there they engaged the community uh, in very different approaches 
So um, I like the approaches and would definitely go for those approaches because they were very impact. The impact was on large scale. Uh, other than that, um, I was biased about how we can use the technology uh, for peace building and all. But after visiting USIP and the Fifth Tribe, I mean, um, I, the idea is coming in my mind that we can use technology in a very better way. So um, I'll be taking all the ideas from US to, to my home city. So that's it. Thank you. Uh, last time we had a meeting with Muflihun that is on organization working on re-engagement and de-radicalization. Uh, one of the key learning was that the organization has prioritized uh, CVE in a very effective manner. Uh, in fact, when we work on CVE, there are several myths associated with it that we, we take everything into the CVE and uh, the result is that when we measure the outcome of that, it does not uh, effectively, uh, it, it does not tell us that how CVE project worked on the ground. So it is important that when we are working on, what I learned that the working on CVE is important, uh, but it is also important to analyze that how you are designing project and how it is related to the key performance indicators uh, and uh, what are your primary focus? Whether you are re-engaging young people, whether it is related to de-radicalization, reintegration, or uh, there was a term that she used for re-enter. So as a former extremist, I think that the direct approach to counter violent ex extremism is important in a situation where uh, Pakistan stands today. Uh, I, I don't think uh, that we normally import the model of uh, United States or Europe uh, to Pakistan, but that uh, that model is not effective over there because we have a kind of a communal system, a community system is strong over there. So when we are working uh, to re-engage young people uh, as, as a as a counter violent extremism project, we need to understand that. Uh, the local mindset is <coughs> collectivist, and so I, this, the primary learning is that we need to uh, re-engage young people directly in the country and violent efforts. Thank you. Uh, sure. Yes, you can. Sorry about the mic. Uh, sure. Uh, my introduce, name is, introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Kami, but I'm the Pakistani spectator, and my question is: This gentleman. Uh, if somebody else uh, belongs to Balochistan, okay. uh, there is a, you know, kind of pro yeah, propaganda, you know, something like from Indian friends that uh, Balochistan is deprived. Uh, there is not much wealth in there. Uh, the central government, Pakistan central government, doesn't want to invest there. Since you are from there, I would like to get your impression that people who get involved with violence, mm -hmm. is that based on their religious feeling or they are exploited by Mullahs? These extremists, uh, the people who get involved with the Islamic extremism, uh, it's because they feel deprived that somehow, I don't know what is your background, if you are from Punjabi family, then it's very likely that your parents migrated there and then you were born and raised up there. So I think I would like to still have a authentic question that how do people, young people, be in Khan, why do why do they be willing to pick up? Uh, weapons and fight to make their own government. Thanks. Thanks.
Um, first of all, I looks like Punjabi, but I'm Pashtun. Um, and also <laughs> so uh, coming to your first question that, uh, yeah, uh, basically uh, provincial and federal government is not interested to invest in this uh, part of Pakistan. Um, there are lots of uh, question arises that why they are not working. But I mean, uh, we can't say openly that why they are not working. So um, federal and provincial government, we are not expecting them uh, because they all are like not uh, in a position to invest here. For investment, I mean that uh, they want some elements in Pakistan, they want to push, put, put and push us to a side, uh, to a corner, towards the corner. So, um, and yeah, and the other response is that uh, the people of Balochistan, because there is a border sharing with Afghanistan and Pakistan, so Balochistan is in the middle. So from the past 36 years, the war has been there. So, um, I mean, it's really difficult. There are more than three to four generations that has badly affected by this war. So, I mean, uh, it's not in a figure that it things will change in a second. So it would take time. And uh, obviously, the extremism and radicalization uh, is uh, not more than religion, but religion is also in involved in that. But also, I mean, uh, in Pakistan, terrorist attack has been done by the university students and also the madrasa students. So we can't say that only religion is responsible for this. So, uh, but I'm really optimistic uh, from the youth of Balochistan because they are thinking uh, beyond the borders. They, they think that we are global citizens and they are working for their own community. So uh, there are lots of things happening in Balochistan, uh, but let's uh, hope for the best that there would be one day that state will be like focusing towards us that and consider us as a human being. Because just three months back, there were two deadly attacks on the educated uh, people. So there is a genocide started there. Uh, there are national and international interests of different countries there. So uh, this part of the world is just like a laboratory. Everyone is experimenting with them. Um, so, but yeah, let's hope for the best. That Thank I you. Only yeah. I can um, say. Let me, let me uh, okay, add a little something. Go on. Let's go first. So, uh, my name is Saqib, and I'm a broadcast journalist with Geo News Pakistan. The question of uh, Balochistan Are the people of Balochistan deprived? I think they are. Everybody will agree with me, and they are deprived. Uh, uh, they are sitting on, uh, you know, gold mines. They have uh, reserves of sui ga of gas. They have reserves of gold, copper, iron, you know, they have this Gawadar port that is supposed to change the destiny of Pakistan. So they are deprived, I mean, they haven't got their due share. Uh, but I mean, uh, the question of Balochistan cannot be answered uh, just in the perspective of Pakistani government or even India blaming Pakistan of, you know, uh, exploiting Balochistan. Currently, Balochistan is a hotbed of, you know, proxy wars and Iran is there, Afghanistan is there, even US is there, even India is there, you know. so the proxy elements of all the uh, regional powers and even US, they are fighting over there. Uh, people of Balochistan, they haven't been able to, you know, uh, uh, maximize their potential because they haven't been given the opportunity, uh, sadly. Uh, the previous regime, they came up with Aghaz Kuki Balochistan project and which didn't materialize, I think. Sharan will agree with me. And the current government, I mean, uh, they've been uh, successful to some extent, but they haven't been able to, you know, develop the area. China-Pakistan corridor is considered as a game changer for the region, uh, but uh, I think Shiran uh, will answer it better that the people of Balochistan they are not happy with the China corridor because they don't know if they'll be able to get uh, uh, the arid buffs of the project. 
but I think uh, uh, judging from the current government's initiatives and the realization within Pakistan's establishment, I think things are moving towards the betterment. Uh, uh, people are uh, focusing on Balochistan. Gwadar is a start. I mean, if we can develop Gwadar, then I think we can uh, change the fortunes of Balochistan. But right now, the situation is in front of you. Are you from Balochistan? No, I'm not. I'm from Sabah. Is there any other students from Rochester? No, no, no. I don't think it's only one. Right. I think the gentleman here has a question. All right, maybe, no, no, maybe go on. Maybe I'd be able to answer it. <laughs> uh, well, um, thank you very much. Um, Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Mike. Uh, I'm a uh, consultant here in uh, Washington, D.C., but I lived in uh, Pakistan in Islamabad for three and a half years working at the UK High Commission. Um, on CBE issues, so this is really interesting and sounds like a fantastic program. So thank you very much for everyone for sharing their stories. Um, that l last kind of uh, talk kind of um, made me think about my time in Pakistan. Often we'd be speaking to kind of government officials or citizens uh, and about how do you tackle the ideological extremism that you know Ayub was just um, talking about, and the automatic response so often would be, "Oh, it's India." You know, it's, a, you know it's, it's other elements. And I wonder how you, all of the young people here feel about how do you go home and tackle the extremism when the automatic response so often is, oh, it's not us, it's other people. You know, these people aren't Muslims. You know, they can't be Muslims, but they're killing Muslims. You know, there's that real issue. How do you get over that? Right, um, there's someone who hasn't spoken from the group wants to maybe address that. Can I address that? Um, hi everyone, so first of all this is a line that I usually say at the end of my uh, whatever I have to say. Uh, my name is Anza Saqib and I'm an optimist and I'll tell you why. So um, we happened to attend the uh, election party last night. Um, not very optimistic I guess everyone's feeling today, uh, but I am and I'll tell you a bit. Look at the end of the day, we come from Pakistan and now you know how it feels. Uh, however, however, now this trip in particular, uh, this trip in particular, if anything that it's proven to me in particular is that um, there's the government and the military and all these state actors and then there's the civil society. And where, when you talk about countering violent terrorism, see counterterrorism is the job of the government and the military and all those organizations, but where CV is concerned, um, we as civil society members uh, as young Pakistanis in particular, and not just Pakistanis, as young Americans as well, um, have a part to play. And uh, the, the, the thing that I learned in particular is, you know, since we're from the younger generation, it's time to get creative. So, um, for example, my work in Pakistan has been uh, primarily to do with the younger people and highlighting the positive elements of Pakistan, um, tackling radical notions through the concepts of Sufi Islam. So when, you, when you're speaking to a university student, even though the research that we have is impeccable, he's not going to take you um, seriously. He's not going to listen to you. He's going to get bored if you hand him like a manual with um, research and facts. What is really going to appeal to him and what is really going to appeal to a radical is if you give them, first of all, um, that feeling of welcoming that um, community uh, incorporation. And if you speak to them in their own language, be it art, music, culture, literature, theater, uh, drama, uh, any of those dialogue, debates. So those things are what really, really matter. And those are the tools that I think all of us coming from different backgrounds and working in different sectors 
in Pakistan as the 15 of us. So that we've got documentary filmmakers, we've got um, comic uh, illustrators, we've got uh, you know economic activists, we've got every uh, people from all sectors of the uh, country, and uh, that is one thing that also made us uh, realize our own worth coming to the United States of America. Uh, to all, every organization that we went to, I can proudly say that um, we learned from them, but we also taught them a great deal about Pakistan and uh, were successful in addressing a lot of misrepresentations. So I think uh, to answer your question in particular, how do we tackle that notion? Um, I think the 15 of us have also uh, learned that it is, since it is our duty and our responsibility, and the governments, regardless of what anyone says, some things are primarily just conspiracy theories, and you living in uh, America are uh, exposed to that a lot. So um, let's not delve into those matters, and we, uh, you know, all 15 of us are going to focus on making a difference wherever we can. Because, you know, to me, uh, quantifying success isn't the number of uh, trainings we give, uh, or, you know, the number of, it's, it's, it's actually the number of mindsets that you can soften. And it's not about hard diplomacy, it's not about hard power, it's about soft diplomacy. Having more programs like these, that is where the real change is going to come. Thank you. Thank you. In very short, I'm going to add two approaches, uh, how we are countering and how we are working for CVE. The first one approach is, is a direct approach. And the second one approach is indirect approach. In a direct approach, we are working and giving the alternative ways. Yes. As my friend and as my other fellows are shared, there's some alternative ways given to the, the youth that they are empowering the youth, they are building the capacity of youth. These are all the direct approaches and we are uh, on a work, workable approaches we are doing in Pakistan. But there are more important and indirect approach, which is related to uh, the educational curriculum which is related to the strengthening the institutional uh, which is our structure and which is again uh, the strengthening of faith-based organizations and leaders as well so we are working in two and I think so in Pakistan on a ground these this will take some time indirect for sure it will take some time even a decade as well so after that, we will have a very productive time and very, uh, you know, hopeful time. He's feeling optimistic but too. <laughs> yes. All of us. Yes, are. all of great. us. So that's the two approaches we are working on. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to your question that how do we actually clarify that notion uh, that it is not India who's doing it, but it is we ourselves. We have come to an agreement when uh, we talk about ourselves that uh, yes, this is our own problem. Yes, this is the problem of Pakistan. This has got nothing to do with India or other, although they have their part, and yes, we can see it in Quetta and other places in the country. But definitely, first, it is our responsibility to protect our uh, inner circles in the country. Uh, talking about which, uh, I think that uh, we have started operations against those people that shows inside our country. Uh, we had the operation in Sawat. We had have the operation in Waziristan uh, going on right now. So we are owning it. It is not that we are not owning the very notion that it is all for. I think I'll briefly touch upon the uh, blame part of, you, uh, of your question. I think uh, uh, 
generally people in pakistan they don't blame india for the uh, extremism thing i mean there's this realization in pakistan that uh, it, it is our own problem like he said but uh, talking about the external factors I, i think we all blame saudi arabia and us for you know uh, the 1980s afghan war and stuff and we've been reaping the you know the rewards of this uh, adventure of ours and about uh, the government's concrete steps i think uh, back in 2014 after the aps attack there was this realize, uh, realization in the government which came in the shape of national action plan that the government needs to take action against all extremist elements regardless of their affiliation you know so pakistani government is taking actions uh, uh, some may not agree with it but i think there is this uh, re- realization that extremism is pakistan's own problem and it is only us that we can yeah. that can you know address it so I'm going to actually hold off here because I want to leave time for you guys to interact a little bit more with the fellows. So I want to thank you all for joining us today, and I encourage you to stay and join us for the enjoy some snacks that are in the back and continue to meet with the fellows. And thank you to the four panelists. Thank you.